today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. As you've been hearing in the news, well, for over a month now, but in particular in the last week, the siege of Mariupol continues. Reports are indicating that it's going to be a particularly brutal time for those who are still inside the steel plant in that port city. Some of them are defenders of Ukraine, military personnel. Others are civilians, and that includes children. This may be a turning point for Russia in the 50-day-old invasion of Ukraine, but can one really believe all the reports that are coming out of Moscow on this? We're also now hearing about jarring satellite images that show what appeared to be mass graves in a town outside the Ukrainian southern port city. Tim McGuire has that report. Satellite images released by Maxar Technologies show what the company says are more than 200 mass graves in Manus, a town outside Mariupol where Ukrainian officials say the Russian Russians have buried as many as 9,000 civilians killed in the fighting. The images show long rows of graves stretching away from an existing cemetery. Mariupol's mayor, Vadim Wachenko, calls the graves a new Baba Yar, a reference to the site of multiple Nazi massacres in which nearly 34,000 Ukrainian Jews were killed in 1941. Maxar says a check of previous images show the graves in Manish were dug in late March and expanded over the past couple of weeks. I'm Tim McGuire. To give us some of his perspective and insights on this situation, uh, we're speaking with Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor of Political Science at Carleton University. Uh, thank you, uh, Mr. Tepper, for joining us. Oh, good morning, Shona. Um, some people are saying that uh, Mariupol is is critically important for Vladimir Putin because to take that area means he now has his land bridge to Crimea, which, of course, he took uh, in an action back in 2014. Is it too early to say that because there's still that one last uh, threshold? It does appear that Mariupol, one way or another, will fall. Uh, the terrible cost to the Ukrainian side, uh, you've just heard some comment on that. This is indeed a turning point of sorts because it will allow that, that as people are saying, the missing puzzle piece. So there will now be a land bridge, assuming that the city comes under complete Russian control, uh, between the Donbass region down through uh, to the Crimea. The, it's also the most Russian-speaking area of that of that. Uh, of Ukraine. So the the turning point here for Russia is they can now say we have a, an accomplishment May 9th everybody's pointing to which is VE day and day earlier in Europe but this is victory over Nazi Germany they can now claim we have liberated uh, our areas the Russian areas from the Nazis as they've been saying all along. But it's also a turning point shown, as others are starting to point out, for the world to really see very, very clearly the nature of the Putin regime. There's no longer any masquerading the brutality that's going to be required that they have been employing already, but they're going to step that up between now and May 9th, apparently. It's a turning point, uh, perhaps, for our understanding of what we didn't do properly before. Uh, just was seeing an interview with the editor of a, of what was uh, a Kiev newspaper. He was a longtime editor, and he said, "This didn't have to happen. What we're seeing in front of us did not happen to happen. Ha- did not have to happen because uh, everybody knew it was coming. We asked for the arms. The arms weren't given. 
So on the one hand, it's great that the West, including Canada, is now responding at a much higher level in providing the kinds of armaments needed to prevent a Mariupol, but it will not help that doomed city. Well, and um, you're referencing the $800 million in additional aid that the Biden administration uh, has just announced just within the last uh, couple of days. Canada also within the last couple of days has said that it's sending more aid, including military aid overseas. Uh, But what you're saying, what I'm hearing you say is that it's it's maybe enough, but way too late in this. Yeah, I'm afraid it's, (laughs) it's way too little and way too late. It's way too little in the sense that it's only now going to be provided, and it still does not provide the air cover that's required. Uh, there's no way to stop the Russians from doing anything they choose, uh, although they may be paying a higher cost due to the enhanced level of armament. It is an enhancement, but it's way too little in terms of preventing what we are seeing and also stopping future actions that require you know, the dominance of the air in particular. And it's way too late, as we see, because this tragedy is unfolding us right right now, right now, Shona, before our eyes. Well, I mean, Putin took Crimea back in 2014. Um, we're looking at uh, the Donbass region where he's made incursions. He went to Kiev, couldn't take it, backed away from that area. Are, are those provinces the ones that uh, uh, they have had uh, Russian militants in for some time, I think around 2015 or so, are those the only areas he's interested in, or does he want all of Ukraine? We have no reason to think he wants anything other than the obliteration of Ukraine as a state. Uh, he's calling it a false state, a phony state, a mistake of history. Uh, this is really little Russia it should not have come into existence in the first place. So the, the, there doesn't seem to be any question that uh, in Russia's mind, they'll either reduce Ukraine to a rump state, keeping in mind, as you pointed out just now, Shona, that they took Crimea and parts of the Donbass region. Like they want to now complete the taking of the oblast, the, the Donbass region. But there's no reason to think that's the end of their uh, ambitions. And if they do take uh, say Odessa, the sinking of the Moskva, the, the battleship the other day helps protect Odessa. But if they take that, uh, Ukraine is reduced under the best of circumstances, if it's allowed to stand, as a rump state. Well, then, if I'm remembering my geography correctly, if they get as far as Odessa, then what might be left of Ukraine um, will really have uh, no seaports. Correct. That's And that. That's why the sinking of the the uh, battleship, the Moskva, the other day is, is should be taken note in terms of protecting Odessa because it was the biggest single threat to Odessa that and the related uh, ships around it. They all have to pull farther out to sea now. So yes, the attempt by Russia to close off Ukraine from the ocean, and of course the Crimea, what we're speaking about now, Mariupol, is a key factor in helping uh, seal off that port area, the the whole sea area around uh, the outlets to the ocean from that part of the country. Also, Mariupol is tying down a lot of troops. So the battle for Mariupol, which is what we're talking about at the minute, has been tying down a lot of Russian troops. So in addition to the land bridge, it now opens up the possibility of fanning out from Mariupol, from that region of thousands and thousands of troops back toward the west, back toward other, and back toward Odessa, back toward other 
military targets that Putin has in mind. Well, we've had reports that uh, Russia has offered safe passage out of the steel plant uh, if those inside drop their weapons. But with the other atrocities that have been revealed in other parts of Ukraine, does anybody believe this is true? It's been offered in the past, and then they shell the, the, the corridor. Right now, they're saying, according to this morning's paper, Moscow says Russia has taken 140,000 civilians from Mariupol in humanitarian evacuations. That is, they're saying if you want to leave, you can come up this way, and maybe they're forcing them out. This is a war crime if they are forcing civilians out uh, against their will into, uh, occupy, uh, into enemy territory. So we are witnessing, um, as I say, if, if, if this is pivotal, one thing that's being pointed out, it should be pivotal to all of us to realize the nature of this regime. The moving into position of authority of the general, the Russian general in charge of Syria, which is a known war crime scene, to put him in overall command now of coordination of the taking of, of Mariupol, but also that uh, the current war effort, which is the land bridge effort, that is a signal that it's the Aleppo model, a, a, a war crime model that's going to be employed going forward. And it has unfortunately been very effective in Syria, and it might, uh, it certainly will lead to further devastation and brutality in Ukraine. Now, I've seen some reports, granted, they were on Twitter, so you have to always take that with a very large grain of salt. Um, And and as I mentioned, they're not confirmed. But uh, there is a report that the Dmitrievsky chemical plant near Moscow has burned. Um, It's one of the largest manufacturers of chemical solvents. And that the Aerospace Defense Research Institute in Tiver burned down uh, yesterday as well. Um, there, it, there are some allegations that, uh, or assertions rather, that these are not two isolated incidents, that there is no coincidence here. But what do you take from this? Well, I take it uh, that Twitter is not the, uh, the final source of authority on these issues, but it's an interesting and intriguing idea. One of the things to comment on when we're talking about the fog of war is a lot is going on that we don't hear about, we will not be informed about uh, a lot of shipping of munitions, a lot of cyber, uh, a lot of, unfortunately, going back to um, the Syrian case and the general brought in, there's going to be mercenaries brought in in substantial numbers now from Syria, which will be playing a role. I'm very, very worried about assassination of Zelensky and his family and uh, the team and the leadership of Ukraine, because I'm afraid hit squads are being released uh, from various sources, the Wagner Group and others. We don't know a lot of what's happening. If what we are hearing is well behind, uh, well into Russia, inside Russia, not at the front lines and not in Ukraine, that would be a very interesting development in this, in this war. And we'll have to see, have to follow that story and see where it leads us. Well, even though Canada and the U.S. and other NATO countries have been giving some support, uh, military support to Ukraine, uh, obviously there is a a lack of willingness uh, to declare a no-fly zone, which was one of the things that Ukraine had certainly asked for early on in this, um, because everyone is afraid that Putin is going to use nukes at some point. Yes, the uh, the specter of nuclear warfare is hanging over this entire uh, this entire contest and keep in mind 
everybody's now watching to see what lessons China is learning. Are they now going to learn the lesson that, oh, the brave Taiwanese would fight them off, or are they going to learn the lesson that if you brandish nuclear weapons, you can get away with anything? So the nuclear threat in the world, in my mind, has gone up significantly. The President of the United States is taking the responsible position of trying to not directly confront Russia in a World War III situation, which is why there's not a no-fly zone. But I go back to, uh, did we have to be in this mess in Mariupol in the first place? If you go back, uh, before there was a build-up, before there was a direct threat, the U.S. and, uh, by the way, Canada and the U.K. had training missions all across uh, all across Ukraine. Uh, they were not part of NATO, but they were there to help train uh, a partner. Had those troops been left in place as a tripwire, that is, if Putin had been t- informed basically in advance, you cannot enter here without crossing our lines, without attacking Americans, and thereby putting, I guess I put it this way, the shoe would be under their foot. Would Putin have dared to risk a nuclear confrontation had that been made clear to him well in advance? In fact, the opposite happened. Those those uh, troops were pulled out. There is no tripwire there, as we have with Canadian troops uh, in the Baltics. So without that tripwire, it was an invitation, I think, in Putin's mind to say, if we are, we are going to do what we want, and you will risk nuclear war if you confront us. The question now is, since the level of confrontation has gone up by the West, ha- has it reached some kind of invisible red line for Mr. Putin? And would he dare to try using a tactical nuclear weapon? which I, f- I find to be an oxymoron. There is no tactical nuclear weapons. It's a nuclear weapon. So we are in a perilous state because of the desire of Mr. Putin to invade and uh, brutalize a neighboring state. And as you say, um, you know, I mean, it's not that we couldn't see this coming. It was ha- impossible to conceive in anybody's minds up until shortly before it happened that Putin would actually mobilize in this century uh, an old-fashioned kind of invasion and occupation of a neighboring state. That was supposed to not happen, you know, in, in Western and civilized areas. It might happen in the Middle East, but it certainly wouldn't happen here. It was very difficult to say that he would, in fact, do this. But looking back, you can say he's got a whole pattern on this. Uh, when he's in trouble at home, he invades somebody. Uh, and his popularity goes up. He was in trouble at home. Uh, the economy was going down. COVID was going up. His popularity was, was collapsing. The economy was on threat of collapse. So he invaded. He did this before in, in Georgia. He did it then in 2014 in, in Crimea. Uh, Bill Browder, who's written now two books about, the, this is the, the, the leader of the Magnitsky Act. So it's just, we could talk about that has just come out and said, it's mechanical. If he's in trouble at home, he invades somebody, and now he's chosen to invade Ukraine, and that's all there is to this. It was impossible to to conceive that he would do something as audacious as as this, but he has, and he uh, will do other things if he's not uh, prevented, in this case, from, from succeeding. Do you think that one of the factors in the timing of this was that Putin felt that the, the rest of the world was so busy with COVID that their economies had been damaged by the fight against the pandemic that uh, they just would not be in a position to really push back. 
that was a factor. There was a preoccupation with domestic affairs all around the world because of COVID. Uh, that was a distraction uh, that created a potential opportunity. But he also saw disarray. There was no... He has helped foment. We should keep this in mind. Uh, the Russians have helped foment disunity in Europe. They helped foment Brexit. They clearly did help bring uh, Donald Trump to power, perhaps not in collusion with him, but uh, they they wanted to create chaos and dissent and dissension and disunity across all democracies, starting in Europe and including the U.S. And he could take a look and say, look, this is really happening. NATO is really, there is no unity in NATO. The EU is being easily fragmented. We can fragment it even further. Uh, the U.S. is preoccupied at home with all kinds of things, some of which they can fan and make worse. So all of the cards seem to be uh, in his hands in order to make an aggressive move. It turns out that he's united NATO. He's created a stronger EU. Uh, he's created a sanctions regime, which is, and we should mention this, just now starting to bite. So in terms of going back to where we started, what he's going to do now in Ukraine, he has to accelerate his victory march there before the sanctions at home really do start to to take hold. They're at the outer edges of creating discomfort, and that's a mild word, across the Russian economy and to the Russian population. Therefore, he needs to move fast to help cover up his strategic error in going into Ukraine. Well, but, and he also needed some kind of a victory to be able to yes. uh, hang th- uh, the May Day celebrations on. Yes, and that, that's... Uh, the only way he can succeed in having something victorious by the 9th of May is to further accelerate the brutality in Ukraine. And that's what we're seeing in front of us now. Yeah, I have a feeling it's going to be a lot worse before. It's, yes, it, indeed. And it's a humanitarian disaster. Uh, we, we have to keep in mind the suffering of the individuals, uh, all those mass graves, but also the dislocation. It was very difficult, I think, for countries like ours, to really identify, say, with Syria. It's very easy for a country like ours and across the West to identify with Ukraine. Therefore, um, uh, the attention is now focused on Russia in a way that he perhaps didn't anticipate, but the Ukrainians are paying the cost. I remember seeing a profile of Vladimir Putin a few years ago, uh, going back to what you were saying about his plans actually being pretty obvious or what his desire was, and that when he came to power, he had always said that the biggest uh, mistake in the history of uh, Russia was uh, the dissolution of the states under the Soviet Union, and he wanted to reunite that. Yes, and had he succeeded, and he might still in some major way, shifting the geopolitical balance by actually invading and occupying and then moving Russian armaments into into Ukraine and into Belarus and then take over Moldova, the geopolitical situation uh, for the world would have been significantly changed in his favor. The balance would have been shifted in his favor. But there's always the possibility that his primary goal is to preserve his own power. Uh, His main concern out of Ukraine, apparently, was these color revolutions, and we saw them in other places in the world, February 4th, when Mr. Putin did something extraordinary, he left his COVID uh, hybrid, uh, isolation and he went to visit 
uh, Xi Jinping, who also is COVID-isolated. The two of them met and they signed a document, as you know, uh, which basically gives a, a back door to evading sanctions. So China can really be helpful there. But buried away in their very long, long document is a statement that China also opposes color revolutions, that is, these revolutions of the people. People's power, is a, that's a threat to, to the dominance of Mr. Putin himself. There was people power emerging in Russia. We should not accept this notion that Russia always longs for a strong man and they like their, their czars and he's just the new czar. People across Russia have really pushed back against that and have struggled against authoritarianism. He's found a way to put that down. But the single biggest reason he may have gone into Ukraine was not only for the distraction. By the way, this is a huge benefit to uh, China because it distracts all the pressure that was being put on them. But a distraction from the pressures building up on him as a, uh, a long-time but failing leader. He was afraid of a color revolution and so is China to a lesser degree. Yes, yeah, some very, some very frightening uh, parallels there. Well, that's uh, exactly so. Yeah, um, and I'm afraid we're going to have to leave that there, but no doubt there's going to be uh, more for us to discuss at another time. But I wanted to thank you for your time. Elliot Tepper is the Emeritus Professor of Political Science with Carleton University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.